We're going into Romans 8. Now, this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I've said sometimes this is my favorite chapter in the Bible, but I think I'm like James Boyce, who uh, was, was uh, announcing in his series on Romans that he's going to start preaching on uh, Romans 8, his favorite chapter in the Bible. And uh, somebody came up and uh, brought up with his, uh, brought up to him his, his commentary on the minor prophets. And I think it was in the book of Hosea. And he says, he says, uh, Dr. Boyce, do you notice what you said here? I think you said this chapter in one of the minor prophets was your favorite chapter in the Bible. Uh, this is a great chapter. Many Christians have looked upon this chapter as their favorite chapter in the Bible. Many people look at Romans 8 as the, uh, as the central chapter of, of, of the Bible. Uh, one commentator said, if Scripture is a ring and Romans is the precious stone in the ring, then Romans 8 is the sparkle in the stone. And there are a couple of other uh, uh, comments like that. If Romans is the holy place in the tabernacle, then Romans 8 is the holy of holies. Do you know what they're saying? I like Romans 8. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Now, Paul has described the Christian as the person who is justified by faith. Now he is going to describe the Christian life as the life of the believer who is indwelt by the by the Holy Spirit. This is a great chapter on the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the Holy Spirit correctly, the way Scripture looks upon the Holy Spirit, you will look at the Holy Spirit as a person, a person who is indwelling you, and you will not look at the Holy Spirit just as a force a power that is in you, enabling you to live for God. It is a person who is in you, the Holy Spirit. Now, how can we have victory over sin? How can we have victory over sin? How can we have that victory that we have in chapter 7 and verse, and verse 25? There are some striking things that are immediately obvious when you compare Romans 7 with Romans 8. First of all, the words I, me, and my occur 49 times in our English Bible. I'm counting the New American Standard uh, version there. 49 times you have the words I, me, and my. In chapter 8, you have those words two times. Two times. Okay? Secondly, in chapter 7, there is one reference to the Holy Spirit. Once. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is referred to 21 times. 
Once in seven, 21 in eight. In chapter seven, the law is mentioned 23 times. In chapter eight, the law is mentioned five times. And not all of those five times are referring to the to the actual Old Testament law, they may be refer- some of them may be referring to the principle uh, of something, the law of the spirit of life, the principle. Uh, so, what's the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8? You see that? There are certain things that are obvious. Romans 7 is all about me. Romans 7 is all about me. Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. Romans 7 is the struggle. The struggle to keep the law. The struggle to please God. But it's all about me. My struggle. In my own strength. Trying to keep the law. We have become child, children of God. We have a new nature. But my new nature does not have enough strength in, its, in itself to overcome sin and to please God. If there is going to be victory over sin, it is going to have to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God has given us the Holy Spirit in order for us to overcome sin in our lives and in order for us to please Him. When Paul says in chapter 7 and verse 24, who will deliver me? And then he says, Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus Christ is delivers us, but He does that through the Holy Spirit that He has sent to work in us. Say, Christ delivers us through His Spirit. What's the connecting word in chapter 8 and verse 1? Therefore. You're making an inference, right? Now, when you see a word like that, What is the logical connection? This is a conclusion uh, based upon something that is preceded. Now, what have we just just had had preceding? Now, he says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you look at the Greek text, the emphasis is on that word, No. It's the literally none. (laughs) That's the first word in the verse. None. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's the conclusion of what? Now, what have we just had in verses 14 to 25? You see a a struggle there in 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 the Christian life. And... We have this struggle wanting to do good and not doing it and not wanting to do evil and doing it to say there is therefore no condemnation. 
that really doesn't follow from the struggle that we have had there in in chapter in chapter uh, seven and and uh, verses fourteen to uh, to twenty one. Now, what Paul seems to be doing here in uh, in chapter eight with this word therefore is going back to chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. What he has done in chapter chapter, uh, 7 and verses 7 and following is answer objections or questions that really relate to the law. And so now he is going to go back to to chapter 6 where he said in chapter 7, in chapter 6, he says that we uh, died to sin in order that we might walk in newness of life. And he has said that we are married to Christ in order that we might bear fruit to God. Now, um, he's going to say to us in chapter 8 that... Uh, we have a new power within us to live to God and to bear fruit to God. And that is why uh, there is now, and because of this, not that is why, but because of this, there is no condemnation. Because of what has happened to us in our relationship to Christ, there is now no condemnation. Now, this is a tremendous statement. No Condemnation. Absolutely none. Is that good news? Is that good news? Now, that is not just good news for you as a sinner who needs to have salvation. That is good news for you as a Christian who has experienced the struggle of chapter 7. Uh, that statement, that statement for you as a Christian will not mean that much if you are not burdened by sin. But if you are disappointed in your Christian life with your inability to really please God, and if you are burdened by your sins as a Christian, this is wonderful news. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, yes, I I accepted Christ. My sins were forgiven. But how can God put up with me when I continue to fail Him so often? (laughs) You see what Paul says right off the bat? Hey, Christian, there's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that does not rule out God's discipline in your life. You remember the book of Hebrews says that if you are a child of God, God's going to discipline you. And it does not say that there is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, the, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But there's no condemnation. There's no punishment 
the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be a judgment of punishment. It is going to be a judgment for rewards. But there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know why? Why? Why is there no condemnation for us? Because Christ bore our condemnation. Our condemnation was laid on Him. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So, when you read this verse, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a tremendous verse. Now, that also means when Paul says, who will deliver me? There is deliverance. There is victory through Christ. But, Remember that the only sins that we can have victory over are forgiven sins. You get that? I love that truth. John Piper emphasizes that truth all the time. The only sins that we can have victory over are forgiven sins. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You notice that in the New King James and the are the King James and the New King James this verse does not end with a statement there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what you have here is not really a question of translation. What you have here is a question of textual criticism. The earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament are like the New American Standard. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, there are manuscripts, particularly the manuscripts from the Middle Ages, that have this extra statement, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, think about that. What is the ground, what is the basis for no condemnation? In the New American Standard, what's the basis for our no condemnation? Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the King James and the New King James, what is the ground for no condemnation? Huh? Yeah, and? Walking, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, what is the basis for no condemnation? It is not our walk which is the basis for no condemnation. If our walk is the basis for no condemnation, we're in trouble. Right? We're in trouble. It is simply on the basis of being in Christ Jesus because His work is sufficient. Now, where does this extra phrase come from? 
that is found in the King James and the New King James. Does anybody know? Does anybody know? Look at verse 4. Where Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the, to the Spirit. In verse 4, those words are found in the text and they are descriptive of a Christian. They're not describing what makes a Christian, but they are describing what a Christian looks like. Now, how did those verbs, those, that, that phrase from verse 4 get to verse 1? There's a note in the Net Bible that says, scribes were evidently motivated to add this phrase, to add this qualification from verse 4 to insulate Paul's gospel from the charge that it was characterized by too much grace. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember what objection that led to at the end of chapter 5? The more sin, the more grace. Therefore, why don't we just keep sinning in order that grace might abound? And so, that is the fear. That is the fear. The fear of antinomianism. And it was probably this fear that caused scribes to transfer that phrase from verse 4 where it has a different meaning to verse 1 where it really becomes a problematic verse. Now, it is possible to understand uh, I have friends that, uh, that uh, support the King James and the New King James and it's possible to understand that as a description of a Christian not the uh, basis uh, for having for the one who has no condemnation, but I think that that is uh, that is um, uh, a mistake. There, this is a tremendous verse. This is a verse to rejoice in. There's no condemnation, no condemnation, none whatsoever. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. And it really focuses on the fact that all of the glory goes to Him. Now, you notice when Paul says that there is no condemnation, it is for those who are what? In Christ. All humanity is divided into two groups. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And those who are in Christ are not condemned. But those who are not in Christ are condemned already. That's what you have in John, in John chapter 3. Right after John 3, 3.16. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that there is, that there is no condemnation. What he is going to do now in verses 2 and 3 
is to show how that is going to to explain that further. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the, cl- in the, in the flesh. Now, Paul says here that, uh, that the law, the uh, law of sin and death, has been broken. Uh, There is a law of sin. Sin leads to death and leads to condemnation. That law has been broken. We have been set free. We have been set free by the Holy Spirit. And he refers here to the law of the Spirit of life. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free, set you free from the law of sin and death. Your justification is followed by sanctification. Now, this is not just the truth that justification should be followed by sanctification. Justification is always followed by sanctification. Remember what we said in Romans 1.16 that, uh, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? It is salvation from the condemnation of sin, justification, but it is also salvation from the power of sin, sanctification. And you do not have one without the other. Now, notice in verse 2 how the Holy Spirit is referred to. He is called the Spirit of life. It is the Spirit of life that has set us free. What is the life that we have in us? It is the life of the Holy Spirit. And that is the life of God. And that is the power of God that we have in us. Now, when Paul says, notice how he refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. He says that the law of the Spirit of life. Now, this is not referring to a law system like commandments. Do this and don't do this. Um, This is referring to uh, something that is more like a law of nature. A law of nature describes how things work. You know, when you refer to the law of gravity, what are you referring to? You're referring to how things work. Uh, Our judicial laws um, are really like commandments. Do this, and uh, this is what you should do, and you're commanded to do. You may and you may not do them. You can break uh, judicial laws. You try to break the law of gravity. What's going to happen? Law of gravity is still going to still going to work. 
and you may suffer, suffer the consequences. Paul is talking about the law of the Spirit of life. He's talking about what the Holy Spirit does and accomplishes in us. He is working on, in us right now. And he will ultimately complete that work. This is a law. He will ultimately complete that work. And he's going to describe this in, uh, in verses 29 and 30 when he says that he is going to make us conformed to the image of Christ and we are going to be glorified. That's going to happen if you are a believer, if the Holy Spirit is within you. Now, the Holy Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, it says that the Holy Spirit has done this, but this is not going to be completely true until we are glorified. And so there is a future aspect of this as far as its ultimate accomplishment. There's a present sense also in which we do have a freedom from sin. And we are not under the dominion of sin. But this freedom from sin is not sinless perfection. Okay, now verse 3. What's the connecting word? For. What is the statement or what is the basis for saying that the law of the Holy Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death? For, he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It's because of what Christ did, what God did by sending his son, son who condemned sin in the flesh. That is the basis for saying that the law of the spirit of life has set us free. This is the reason why there is no condemnation and why we are freed from the power of sin. What is it? It's because of what Christ has done. It's the work of Christ. The work of Christ is the basis for our freedom. Whether it's the freedom from the past guilt of sin or whether it is freedom from the present power of sin. The work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification is based upon the work of Christ. For what the law could not do. What could not the law do? Couldn't save us? More than that. The law could not produce righteousness. The law could not produce righteousness. It could not save us. It could condemn us, but it could not save us. Now, what's the problem with the law? Why was the law, why is the law so ineffective? What does Paul say? The law is weak. Why is it weak? Huh? 
our sinful nature. What does he say? It is weak through the flesh. The problem was not with the law. What did we see in chapter 7? What did, how did Paul describe the law? Never forget this. The law is three things. Huh? Good. That's one of them. Holy and righteous. He says the law is holy and righteous and good. That's the law. There's no problem with the law. The law is a perfect reflection of the standard, a perfect reflection of the righteousness of God. The problem is what is not with the law. The problem is the weakness of the flesh. The weakness of our sinful nature. It's the weakness of the material that the law had to work with. Somebody said that Rembrandt would never have been able to paint a masterpiece if he had to paint it on toilet paper. Why? It's so thin and, and fragile. Well, that's us. That's us. We are, we are weak through the flesh. What is God's solution? What is God's solution? You notice this verse? God's solution to the problem of our inability to be saved through the law because of not the standard being imperfect, but us being too weak. God's solution was what? Huh? Christ. What does it say? He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. Now that is a a very important statement. It's a very important statement theology. Um, theologically. The solution is God's work in sending His own Son. But notice how Christ is referred to here. Who did God send? Who did He send? His own Son. Now you notice He was already the Son of God when God sent him. He didn't become the Son of God by the Incarnation. He did not become the Son of God when he was, was here on the earth. He was already the Son when God sent him. And so, here we have a, fact, a reference to the fact that from all eternity... He was the Son of God. This is a reference to the deity of Christ. He is the eternal Son of God. But you notice there is also a statement about the humanity of Christ. What does Paul say? in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent His Son, the Eternal Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that's a very carefully worded statement. You notice, He doesn't say 
God sent His Son in the likeness of flesh. Uh, he does not say that God sent His Son and He came into the world and He, he looked like a man. That is a heresy. That was one of the first heresies in the early church. What heresy was that? That is, was the heresy of docetism. The Greek word dokeo means to seem. And that was the heresy that said that Jesus seemed to be a man. He seemed to be a man, but he really was not a true human being. That was one of the Gnostic heresies. Now, it's interesting. That was the first Christological heresy. When you look at heresies today that relate to the person of Christ, uh, what is the heresy that is most prominent today when people look at Christ? Just a man. What do they deny? His deity. We have to defend the deity of Christ. The first heresy that related to the person of Christ had to do with his humanity. The, the Gnostics, the Docetists, said that he was not really a, a true human being. He just seemed to be a human being. Now, which heresy is worse? The denial of his deity or the denial of his humanity? Huh? Both. We've got a theologian back there. Uh, that is correct. That is correct. For Christ to be our Savior, he must be both God and man. If he is not God, then what he did on the cross is not of sufficient worth and value to save us. And if he is not truly man, then he could not take our place, die for us, be our representative there on the cross. The writer of Hebrews said that uh, he didn't become an angel. And uh, God did not send him to redeem angels. He became a man that he might redeem us. So, both the deity and humanity of Christ are essential. He does not say he came in the likeness of flesh. Uh, it says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, you notice also, it does not say that he came in sinful flesh. It does not say that he assumed our sinful human nature. There are a lot of theologians that are, that are saying that today. They are saying that Christ, when he came into this world, took our nature upon himself, and since we are all sinful, that he must have taken upon himself our sinful humanity. The Bible never says that. The Bible says that he, he did no sin, he knew no sin, 
and sin was not in him. He did not come in the like in, in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful sinful flesh. Uh, he was like us in our genuine human nature. But it was a perfect humanity, not a sinful humanity that he came and, and, and assumed. And so, it was this person, the God-man, the perfect God-man. What did he do? He condemned sin in the flesh. And so, in Christ's work, we have a judgment against sin and a judgment against the right of sin to have dominion over us. That's what we had in chapter 6. And he did that. Now notice, what are the connecting words in verse 4? In order that. What does that indicate? What idea does, do the words in order that in order that indicate? Purpose. Purpose. He condemned sin in the flesh. For what purpose? Now you remember what Paul said in verse in chapter in chapter six? You are not under law, but under grace. And uh, we have been freed from the law. Now the purpose of our being freed from the law and the purpose of our being uh, not under law but under grace is not to live a lawless life. But the purpose is that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, uh, we are not under the law, but there is no contradiction between life in the Spirit and the keeping of the law. Paul says that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. Now, what did we remember what we said about the law? The law is a reflection of the righteous character of God. Now, there are some... The law... There are a number of different laws in the Old Testament. There are some laws that are based upon the nature, the eternal nature of God in the Old Testament. When you have a law against, uh, against uh, uh, worshipping other gods when you have a law against making idols, when you have a law against lying. Why, why, why are we not to lie? Because God cannot lie. That's, that's, that's His nature. Those are laws that are based upon the nature of God. There are other laws that are found in the Mosaic Law that were really meant to be pedagogical. There are, you know, there, there, were, there were laws that said, you cannot eat this food. This food is unclean. You can't eat this food. Now, is that food inherently unclean? In the New Testament, Paul says that, that uh, whatever we give thanks for, we can eat. 
because it's, it's, it's God's food, you know, and we're not under the law, so we can, we can, it's not inherent. What God was trying to do was teach that principle of the difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy. Uh, there are, were some commandments that were, were more arbitrary. You know what a parent says? Uh, do this. And the flippant teenager says, why should I do it? And the parent says, because I said so. <laughs> why do I see from your faces that you've all heard that, <laughs> that reason? Well, you know, there are some things that God commanded and are needed, and, and we need to obey. Man needs to just because he said so. When he said to Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the of the of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, was you know was that a moral issue? Like lying? Rather, that was just the commandment of God. Obey that. Why? Because I said so. So there are different kinds of laws. Now, when it says here that we uh, who walk according to the Spirit, what do we do? We fulfill what? The righteous requirement of the law. We fulfill the righteousness of the law. That doesn't mean that, that we obey every one of the legal commandments of the Mosaic law. We do not obey those ceremonial laws that have been fulfilled in Christ. We do not obey the, the arbitrary kind of commandments or the pedagogical kind of, of commandments. We do obey the righteous requirements of law. All of those laws that are based upon the, the holy character and eternal will of, of God. We do obey those laws. And so Paul says that the Spirit, uh, God, God sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, the Christian life is not the life of trying to, to obey an external code of laws that is imposed upon us. It is the life of a person, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, producing His fruit within us. Uh, he produces His graces in us as they are seen in a life in Christ. So, it is Christ's work in verse 3 that leads to the holiness of life through the Holy Spirit in verse 4. And so the whole goal of the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ is that we might live holy lives. 
Okay? So you see here, now I've just said that it is the work of the Holy Spirit who produces that fruit in us. Now you notice how I've described the Christian life? That describes the Christian life from the divine side, right? Your question earlier was, where do we fit in? Now, do you notice what Paul, the expression that Paul uses here? But we walk according to the Spirit. That word walk, that word walk, looks at the human aspect of things. You know, we are not, you know, we are not robots. You know, we are not mechanical objects. We are not computers that are just being, being programmed and everything. We are really walking. We are really walking. There is a human side for the, for the Christian life. We have to yield to the Spirit. We have to, chapter 6, reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. We yield to the Spirit. We, uh, <coughs> we seek to please God and everything like that. But we do not do that in our own strength. We do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is a, there is a connection and so, you know, you, you really, you do not have the one-sided uh, human resolutions, human trying harder. You do not have just uh, let go and let God uh, just, you know, be a passive kind of object where the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is, uh, is producing your words and producing your actions and things like that. There is really uh, a walk. And walk involves one st- each, each step of the Christian life. That we are walking, but it is in the, in the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, this great chapter, is about life in the Spirit. And in verses 1 to 11, Paul is talking to us particularly about that life in the Spirit. He has begun by saying that we have no condemnation in Christ. Uh, We are free from the power of sin. Now, why do believers walk according to the Spirit? Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. He has said in verse 4, that the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why do believers walk according to the Spirit? You see what verse 5 is saying? That, there are two minds. There is the mind of the flesh. There is the mind of the Spirit. If, if you have the mind of the flesh, <clears throat> you will walk one way. If you have the mind of the, of the Spirit, you will walk another way. Now, look at these verses. Who is being referred to here? Who is being referred to here? Now, be careful. 
Look at verses 5 to 7. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Who are those who are in the flesh? Look at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not of him. Who are those who are in the flesh? Unbelievers. Who are those who are in the Spirit? Believers. Paul is talking here about believers and unbelievers. He is not talking about uh, spiritual believers and carnal believers. He is talking about believers and unbelievers. Notice, there are 71 verbs in Romans chapter 8. 71 verbs. I counted them all. No, I didn't. What you have here in your electronic concordances, you can search the verbs of, uh, of the book or the chapter and it will count them for you. But there are 71 verbs in Romans chapter 7 and they are all in the indicative mood. The indicative mood is the mood that describes fact or reality. The number of imperatives, the number of commands in Romans 8 is zero. The number of uh, exhortations in Romans 8 is zero. What Paul is doing in Romans 8 is describing believers and unbelievers. Now, do you walk in the flesh or do you walk in the Spirit? What's the question that I just asked? Are you a believer or are you an unbeliever? Now get that. This is important because a lot of times we read passages like this about walking in the, in the Spirit and we think, well, there are some Christians who are godly Spiritual, they walk in the Spirit. And then there are some ordinary Christians who are, who are not very spiritually spiritual and they are living uh, immature lives and carnal lives and they're not walking in the Spirit. That's not what Paul is, is talking about here. He is talking about those who are believers, they walk in the Spirit. And he is talking about those who are unbelievers, they do not walk in the Spirit. In the spirit. So, are you a Christian or are you a non-Christian? Do you have the mind of the spirit? Or do you have the mind of the flesh? 
If you're a believer, you have what? The mind of the Spirit. If you are not a believer, you have the mind of the flesh. If you have the Spirit of Christ, then the Holy Spirit is within you, lives within you, and the fruit of the Spirit is going to be manifest in you. Every believer has the Spirit of God within, indwelling. And therefore, every believer is going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit to some degree or other. Now, some believers may not manifest very much fruit. And other believers are going to manifest more fruit. But if you do have the, uh, the Spirit, then you are going to have fruit. <clears throat> the main reason why believers walk after the Spirit is based upon the principle that you live according to your in inward inclination. You know, you have a fundamental orientation. You have a fundamental inclination. And uh, your walk, your life, is based upon your inward disposition. And so, if your inward disposition revolves around the lusts of the flesh, then you will walk according to the flesh. And so, you... Uh, have here a description of a person who is not a real believer. Those who are according to the Spirit have the Holy Spirit within them and thus have an inclination towards holiness. So, this is, first of all, we're talking about believers and unbelievers here. Notice verses 6 and 7. He says, for to be carnally minded is death. Literally, the mind uh, set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Now, why is the mind of the flesh death? Do you notice what he says here? What What is characteristic of the mind of the flesh, or New King James says to be carnally minded. What does he say about it? You see it? The mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. That's verse 7. The mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. You see how that goes to the very root? He's not here talking about the deeds of the flesh. He's talking about the mind, the, uh, the set of the heart. The deeds come from the heart. They come from the mind. The mind that is hostile toward God is going to produce the deeds of the flesh, the walk according to the flesh. Now, why is the mind of the flesh hostile toward God? You notice what he says? Huh? It does not submit to God. It is not subject to the law of God. Verse 7. 
it does not submit to the law of God. Now notice the end of the verse. Nor is it able. Nor is it able. Do you see what we have here? And then, and then look. Verse 8. For those who are in the flesh, what does it say? Cannot please God. Is an unbeliever able to please God? Is an unbeliever able to do anything that pleases God? What does this verse say? Now, what is this doctrine? This is the doctrine of total inability. The doctrine of total inability. The unbeliever is totally unable to please God. Now, what's the, what's the expression that many of the systematic theologies use? Not total inability, but total depravity. Total depravity. And many people balk at this idea of total depravity. Because when you talk about total depravity, they think that you mean that everybody is as bad as possible. Everybody does as much evil as, as possible. That's not what that doctrine is saying. Total depravity does not mean that everybody is an Adolf Hitler. You can have a very nice, respectable, cultured, religious person who rejects Christ. Uh, we would say that person is very moral in much of his life, but that person is totally unable to please God. Total depravity means simply that sin has affected every area of our nature. It has affected our mind, it has affected our will, it has affected our desires, it has affected our actions, so that we are totally unable to please God. Why are we totally unable to please God? Because if we are outside of Christ, we have a mind, what has he just said? That is hostile to God. The mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. Now, a person who is totally depraved on a horizontal level may do many things that we would commend. Many things that we would commend. But on a vertical level, none of it is pleasing to God. Why not? The Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. If, uh, if, if we are not reconciled to God, then nothing we can do can ever please Him. I remember sometimes when my, when my kids would do something where they were disobedient. 
And uh, that disobedience was an issue. And until that issue was settled, then nothing they did really would, uh, would please me. Now, that was the issue. And they knew it was the issue. Now, they might, they might try to do something, you know, uh, something for me to, 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 to get me to smile and to gain my favor. But those nice things and good things that they were doing, uh, uh-uh. That doesn't work. Why? You've got to get that big issue settled first. When it comes to an unbeliever, a person who is outside of Christ, some of their good deeds, do they gain favor with God? No. You really need to, to settle the big issue first and become reconciled to God. And unless something is done for the glory of God, it is not, it is not pleasing to God. Now, you notice verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Paul's using some language here that could be confusing. That phrase, in the flesh. Why could it be confusing? Because Paul will use those same words sometimes to refer to unbelievers and he will use the same words to describe believers. Now, when he says, you are not in the flesh, what is he saying? You believers are not in the flesh. So he's using that expression simply to describe believers. Unbelievers. But then, any of you know Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The life that I now live, what? In the flesh. Paul's describing himself as a believer. You are not in the flesh. I am living in the flesh. See, he's using that phrase in the flesh in two different senses. And that's because the word flesh has a number of different meanings in the Bible. The word flesh can refer to the soft tissues. The, the, the part of us that is left if you take out all of the bones. Uh, that would be our flesh. The term flesh can be used for human nature. For human nature. The Word became flesh. There's nothing sinful about that. Jesus became a human being. And then, thirdly, the word flesh can be used of that part of us which is sinful, our sinful nature. And so... Here he is referring to those who are in the flesh. He is talking about those who are controlled by and dominated by their sinful nature. He is referring to 
unbelievers. So, those who have the mind of the flesh, those who are according to the flesh, are non-Christians. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You are not in the flesh. We continue to have the flesh. We continue to have an old nature. That's why you have the conflict in, in chapter 7. The good that I would, I do not do. The evil that I would not do, that I do. You have that kind of conflict. Because we have that old nature as well as the new nature in, in Christ. We are, we have the flesh, but we are not in the flesh. We are in the Spirit. Now, notice after he says, you are in the Spirit. If. What? If. If what? If the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, in Greek, there are different ways of expressing the word if. <clears throat> Sometimes the word if can uh, indicate uh, there's a question here. Uh, sometimes the word if can indicate <coughs> a condition that is assumed to be true. And that is what you have here. When Paul says, if you are in the Spirit, assuming that, assuming that you are or that, that, the, that the Spirit is in you. So Paul says here, in verse, in verse 9, if indeed, assuming that the Spirit of God dwells in you. He does assume that they have the Spirit, Holy Spirit, within them. At the same time, he, he does say if. And that word if does have in it a warning. If I am preaching to a to a, a congregation where I know that the majority of them are Christians, I may address the group as a whole. And when I do that, I assume that I am talking to Christians. At the same time, I may realize that there may be a number of people in that congregation who are not genuine believers. And so, Paul says he, he's addressing them as Christians. He is assuming that the Holy Spirit is within them. But at the same time, he says uh, that it may be, or indicates that it may be, that you do not have the Holy Spirit. And if anyone, do you see what he says? If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, what? He does not belong to Christ. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, 
You are not a genuine believer. You are not a child of God. You do not belong to Christ. Now look at that verse again. Verse verse 9. Doctrinally, this is a very important verse. It seems to me that this verse refutes the whole holiness or perfectionist movement of the Wesleyans and the uh, Pentecostal movement. They are both part of the same thing. But it refutes that, that holiness, perfectionist theology. Now, why does it refute it? Um, what is it that the holiness perfectionist theology says. Basically, they have looked at receiving the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace, something that happens to you after you have been saved, after you have been justified. You, by faith, received Christ as your Savior. What happened? You were justified. Now what do you need to do? you need to receive Christ for sanctification. And when you do that, you receive the Holy Spirit and you are sanctified. You are perfected. So, uh, sanctification, receiving the Holy Spirit, is a second work of grace. What does this verse say? You can't be saved before you have the Holy Spirit if you do not have the Holy Spirit, does that mean that you are an unsanctified Christian? What does it mean? What does the verse say? You are not a Christian at all. You are not saved. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Now, can you lose the Holy Spirit? If you lose the Holy Spirit, what is this verse saying? Huh? You aren't saved. If you lose the Holy Spirit, you lose your salvation. Now, Psalm 51 is a great is a great psalm. It's the psalm of, of, of David's confession and penitence after his sin with Bathsheba. What does David say? Do you like to sing Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's a great verse. That's a great thing to sing, isn't it? But then, when we're singing that psalm, we also sing, I think it's around verse, verse 11 or so, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is a verse that a Christian should never sing. Because that is Old Testament doctrine. It is not New Testament doctrine. 
in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would indwell a person, would indwell believers selectively and temporarily. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit did indwell people, but it was selective and it was temporary. And so David, the Holy Spirit had come upon him, the Holy Spirit had empowered him, the Holy Spirit had indwelt him, but after his sin, he prays, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, every believer, every believer is permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? How do I know that? Because of this verse. Because if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. And we're going to come to the last part of this chapter and Paul is going to argue in words that cannot be misunderstood that you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. And that means that you cannot lose the Holy Spirit. Now, the next time you're in church and they start singing Psalm 51, when it comes to that, those words... Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You should all start gagging. In fact, they should be calling in the paramedics to come and help you if you actually, if you actually mouth those words. Because that is not what you want to sing as a Christian. How can we overcome the power of indwelling sin? And the answer is, through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So, uh, the test of being a Christian, the test of belonging to Christ, is whether you have the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 10 says, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, he is talking about our bodies, our physical bodies, and he says that our bodies are dead. He's not talking about them being presently dead, but he's looking at the ultimate destiny of the body. Uh, it is dead in the sense that it is now in corruption. It is now mortal. It is now decaying. Bones break. We uh, get old and lose our hair. And uh, it becomes gray. And uh, we uh, lose our eyesight. And we eventually uh, are uh, falling apart. That's what happens because... This body is experiencing the corruption of, of sin. It is mortal. 
but the Spirit is life. Now, our body is dead, look at verse 10, because of sin, but the Spirit is life. Now, look at that word spirit. Anybody have a new King James? The word spirit, capitalized or not? Capitalized. New American Standard. Not capitalized. Do you see the issue here? When he says the spirit is life, is this referring to the Holy Spirit? Capital S. New King James, or is this referring to our spirit, little s? Um, and what you see there is that the translators of those two different translations adopted two different interpretations. Now, the contrast is with the body. Our body is dead. The spirit is life. And that probably is referring to uh, our human spirit being regenerated, now being alive. But there's a very close connection because you notice in verse 11, but if the spirit, that's a capital S, this is the Holy Spirit. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then what is he going to do? If the Spirit dwells within you, then he is going to, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Just as he raised Christ from the dead, you can also count on him to make alive your mortal body. Now, when he says make alive, we have here to what a, a reference to what doctrine? It's the resurrection of the body. Now, in John chapter 5, Jesus refers to both believers and unbelievers being resurrected. He says that believers will experience the resurrection of life and unbelievers will experience a resurrection unto death. When Paul says that he will make alive your mortal bodies, that word alive is only used in, in reference to believers. Uh, unbelievers will be resurrected. They will have an eternal existence. But the Bible doesn't say that they will be alive in the sense of having eternal life. They will have eternal existence because it will be eternal death. It will be eternal existence separated from God. This phrase is, is only used in reference to believers. We are alive now, spiritually. And He will finish that work in our resurrection and which He will make our 
these, these mortal bodies alive, immortal and incorruptible. Okay, so verses 1 to 11, we have life here in the Spirit. Verse 12 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verses 12 to 17 are the obligation to live according to the Spirit. The obligation to live according to the Spirit. You notice verse 12 begins with what word? Therefore. Therefore. On the basis of the fact that he has said that we have the Holy Spirit in us, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what's the inference? We have an obligation to what? To live according to the Spirit. And that means that our obligation is an obligation not to sin, but to live righteous lives. Now look at verse 13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Who are those who live according to the flesh? Those who are in the flesh, those who are according to the flesh. These are unbelievers. If you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. Unbelievers are spiritually dead and will experience eternal death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The unbeliever lives in the realm of death. The believer who has the Holy Spirit lives according to the Spirit and it says that that believer will put to death the deeds of the flesh. If you are a rotten tree, Jesus says, you're going to produce rotten fruit. Uh, if you have a corrupt nature, the life from that corrupt nature is going to be corrupt and spiritual death naturally follows. If you have the Spirit of, of, of God, the Spirit of Christ, you are going to live according to the Spirit and you are going to produce spiritual fruit. The true believer is going to walk according to the Spirit. Verse, verse 4. Now, verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, who are those who are led by the Spirit of God? All believers. All believers are led by the Spirit of God. Now, while we are still in this life, we are not completely led by the Spirit of God or we are not completely following the Spirit of God. We do not walk according to the Spirit the way we should. We should be growing in grace. 
But every believer is walking by the Spirit and led by the Spirit of God. Every believer in verse, in verse uh, 13 is putting to death the deeds of the body. The, uh, the old Puritans like to talk about the mortification of the flesh. Uh, that sounds old-fashioned, doesn't it? The mortification of the flesh. What were they talking about? They were talking about verse 13 here. And they were talking about a Christian living in such a way as to deal seriously with sin and, uh, and, and put to death those deeds. Now, verse 15, he says, he said that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I think there's a play on words here. Uh, play on words, the play on the word spirit. When he says, we did not receive the spirit of bondage. That's a little s. When we talk about the spirit of bondage, we're talking about the disposition, the attitude of bondage. What did we receive? We received the spirit of adoption. Now, that's not a little s. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit who indwells us. <clears throat> and because we have, have uh, received the Holy Spirit, we are now adopted as sons. And we have the right to cry out what? Abba, Father. Now that word Abba, you know what language that is? It's Aramaic. Now think about that. We are in a, a book that Paul is writing in Greek to Gentile Christians in Rome. What on earth would he be using this Aramaic word for? That word Abba, that Aramaic word Abba, means Father. That was a, a, a new, startling, striking word that, increased, that, that impressed the, the disciples of, of Christ in a very dramatic way. Um, before Jesus... No individual Palestinian Jew ever addressed God as my father. Now, the Old Testament will speak of God as the father of the nation, but not of individuals. Uh, no one ever before Christ addressed God as Father. So when he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, what do you say? Abba, Abba, 
Father. That word Abba was uh, the word that a, a very young child, a child just beginning to speak, would, uh, would use in, uh, in referring to his father. Very easy, very easy word to say. Even the, you know, your, your two-year-olds, your two-year-old can say Abba, Abba, Abba. Uh, our grandchildren call Nancy Nana. That's another easy word like that to say, Nana, Nana. You know, they just, as soon as they begin saying sounds, they can say Nana. And so when we had our first grandchild, when uh, Cameron was, uh, Cindy and Bryce were living out in, uh, in, uh, in Washington State, and we would be talking to them on the phone, they would, uh, they would put Cameron on. He was probably a year and a half, year and three quarters, and uh, just saying certain sounds. And Cindy would hold up a banana, and he would say, Nana, Nana. <laughs> and she was trying to make it sound like he was able to, to say Nana and speak to her over the phone. Well, those are the sounds. Those are the sounds that a little, that a little baby can say Abba. And it is saying that we have that relationship to God as His little children. We can call Him Abba. And that concept was so startling that it just it, it swept through the church, even in the Gentile church, the Greek-speaking church. They kept saying, Abba, Father. Now, that doesn't mean because we call God Abba that we cease to be reverent uh, in addressing Him. There are some certain people that because, well, daddy, and uh, they become a little flippant in their attitude towards God. We, we are not flippant, but we have a very personal relationship and can come to him as our own personal father. 